Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. Derek Black was the golden boy of white nationalism. His father founded the racist website Stormfront. His godfather is David Duke. But things started to change when he enrolled in college. In Rising Out of Hatred, the Awakening of a Former White Nationalist, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Eli Saslow of the Washington Post chronicles Derek Black's transformation from white nationalist leader to outspoken critic of the movement he was born and raised to lead. Hear more about this fascinating story and how it relates to today, right now. Eli Saslow, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me on. Okay, so your your book is pretty incredible because it it's the story about a young man named Derek Black. Tell us who Derek Black is. Sure. Or what actually who Derek Black was. Yeah, exactly. I think was is 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 the keyword. Um you know, Derek was raised uh, sort of within the very insular world of, of the white nationalist movement. Um, his father, Don Black, had been the head of the KKK in the United States for a decade, uh, and then later in his life had started Stormfront, which is sort of the epicenter of, of racism online. It's the, the largest, for 20 years, uh, it, it has been the largest sort of racist website in the world. Um, Derek's godfather was David Duke, uh, probably the most notorious racist politician of you know modern times um, and both of those men raised Derek kind of in their in their image to take over this movement um, and to mainstream it and because Derek was really really smart um, and in that case I should say is really smart um, and also really ambitious he invested himself in these ideas that um, kind of you know he'd been indoctrinated with um, and was disastrously successful you know by the time he was 18 19 years old he'd been elected to office on the Republican committee in Florida. Um, he had his own daily radio show. He was traveling around the country to these white supremacist conferences, giving speeches about how politics were the way that that these people could, quote unquote, take the country back. Um, you know, and, and Derek did a lot to spread these ideas and grow this movement uh, until later, a little bit later in life, after first going to community college, he went to college um, and through the course of three you know, really dramatic years, um, he slowly kind of realized that not only had he been wrong about everything, but also that he had caused huge and tremendous damage um, and had to figure out what to do about that. And and the book sort of takes place over those three years. Yes. Okay. Let's not let's not give it away because it is <laughs> it is an incredible story. So David Duke is is Derek's godfather, right? Right. Yes. But he's also Derek's mom's first husband. Yeah, in the in the very strange, uh, you know, for for all the other reasons that it's strange and awful, um, also uh, an unusual closeness in this white nationalist world, and that Don Black, Derek's father, and David Duke were essentially best friends, um, our, our best friends, and also, you know, sort of ran this ran this movement together. Um, you know, when David Duke was the head of the Klan, Don Black, Derek's father, was his number two. Uh, you know, they 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 kind of came into this movement together and and rose to the top together. At first, David Duke at LSU met a woman uh, who he married and had two daughters with. Um, Then they divorced, and a few years later, she married David Duke's best friend, Don Black. They 
had a child, and that's Derek. Um, so so David Duke was you know sort of a presence at at Christmas all the time. Um, Derek would go and spend time staying with him in Europe, where David Duke spends a lot of his time. You know, a, a real unusual closeness. Derek's two half sisters are David Duke's daughters. Right, and, and and David Duke is spending his time in, I believe, it's Austria, and isn't allowed to travel into Germany, but he does a, a, a couple times to go see Derek when he's studying there abroad. Not to be hyperbolic about this, but just in the description of Derek and and uh, his life, then Derek was being groomed to be a leader. And I kept sitting there thinking, oh, my God, this is sort of like the white nationalist Kennedy family. Yeah. Where I think I think think you're spot on, you know, and and I think, you know, not only was David Duke grooming him to to sort of be his protege, but sort of much scarier and and probably more powerful. Derek saw himself the same way. You know, I I mean, his his goal for his life as a teenager was to lead uh, sort of a a white takeover of of the country. And, you know, he'd he'd invested himself in in that. You know, it it was what he spent his time studying and reading about. I think it's also important to note that David Duke and Don Black and Derek's Derek's family had decided to remove him from the public schools where he lived because they thought those schools were too diverse. And so Derek was spending almost all of his time either at home where he would research, uh, you know, not only science and math and things like that, but also white nationalist ideas. Or he was traveling along with his father and David Duke as they would spend weeks at a time going usually through the deep south to all of these conferences or spending time with their white nationalist friends and you know they said that Derek was quote unquote unschooled they they wanted to school him only in these white nationalist ideas now the thing about the thing about Derek and the reason why they invested so much in him was the way he went about uh, espousing the white nationalist idea he was sort of david duke 2.0 because as i read your um y- your descriptions of derek i kept going back to my interview with mitch landrew the former mayor of of new orleans and his book and how he wrote about his dealings with david duke in louisiana and how david duke was trump uh 1.0 but in this you know David Duke was able to get as many votes as he did because he put a smiley face on white supremacy and white nationalism. And of Derek, you write, he never used racist slurs. He didn't advocate for outright violence or breaking the law. His core beliefs were the same as those of most white nationalists, that America would be better off as a whites-only country and that all minorities should eventually be forced to leave. But instead of basing his public arguments on emotion or explicit prejudice, he spoke mostly about what he believed to be the facts of racial science, immigration, and a declining white middle class. Yeah, and and was extraordinarily powerful in doing that. I mean, I think one of Derek's most lasting and and damaging uh, impacts on on this white nationalist movement is that he convinced his father to scrub Stormfront of all racial slurs, um, all Nazi insignia. This this message board that you know still remains extremely explicitly racist uh, no longer traffics in sort of the lowest form of of racism. And Derek thought you know the way we're going to reach more people um, is instead of a 
of using this kind of language. We need to play to this false, but uh, unfortunately, very widely spread sense of white grievance that still exists in in big parts of this country. Um, And Derek began targeting the message to those people. And so when he ran for office in Florida, he would go around talking not explicitly about being a racist, um, but would say things like, isn't it too bad that we start, we're starting to have all these signs in Spanish all around us? Shouldn't, shouldn't this really be a country that only speaks English? Um, don't you think it's too bad that we have all of these immigrants coming here, changing the culture of what the country is? Uh, don't you think that, that the violence in the inner cities is a problem? And isn't that probably because of the kind of people who sometimes live in inner cities? Uh, he, would, he would traffic in all of these stereotypes. Um, and by doing that, would begin to speak to a lot of white voters who agreed with some of his ideas. I mean, I think the fact for me that um, lasts in my head more than any other in reporting the book is this idea that still in this country, about a third of white people believe that they experience more discrimination and more prejudice than people of color or Jews. Um, That is wildly, wildly off base by every statistical, historical, factual measure that we have. But the fact that that much grievance exists in parts of white America means that these messages have real currency um, in parts of the country. And Derek, Derek was one of the people who figured that out. Well, to that point, uh, you write all about you mentioned earlier that Derek has or had a radio show on, you know, through through Stormfront that was very, very popular. And you write you, you write about Derek's philosophy then that white nationalists were not fighting against minority rights, but fighting for rights of their own. Derek and other activists were, quote, simply trying to protect and preserve an endangered heritage and culture, he said. They were trying to save whites from, a, from an, quote, inevitable genocide by mass immigration and forced assimilation. What's happening right now is a genocide of our people, plain and simple, Derek said. We are Europeans. We have a right to exist we will not be replaced in our own country, which has ex- echoes of, of Charlottesville. But then there is one more thing that you wrote about um, in, in your book, and it's quoting Derek from his radio show. I believe it's in 2008. And this gets to your point about uh, white grievance going into electoral politics. He said on that show, most white people don't want to be called racist. But they do want to make sure their culture and their position in society isn't going to be undermined. People are just waiting for white candidates to come along who are brave enough to talk about these things. And when that happens, whites will go streaming to the polls. Yep. Yeah. Pretty, pretty powerful and pretty prescient, I would say. Um, you know, I think one of the things that you mentioned uh, in there also is this idea of, of white genocide, which has become probably the most uh, powerful keyword within the the white nationalist movement. Um, and, and it's something that Derek did more than almost anyone to help popularize. And when he first suggested it, you know, a lot of people in this movement thought it was a weird idea. Like, why why are we going to talk about this idea that um, that whites are going to be wiped out? How, how is this really a genocide? How is that powerful? Um, but, but Derek sort of decided that, you know, if we can convince people that the way the demographics are changing in this country is going to wipe them out, is going to wipe their children out, uh, is going to mean that their people, quote unquote, don't don't have a future, um, then that is something that will activate them uh, and and you know just recently at the synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh, um, I know that Derek was was haunted and sick to his stomach to hear that the shooter had had walked out of there saying that he had done this because there was a white genocide underway. And um, that term has become exceptionally popular within the movement. 
You know, um, we'll we'll get to um, Derek's sort of transformation right now. And that starts when he goes to New College in in Florida. And he ends up, here's this white nationalist, arrives on campus, and he ends up having this collection of friends who he had spent his entire life denigrating, sort of in the abstract. We right. had Matthew, who, uh, who is uh, Orthodox, Orthodox Jew, Moshe, Juan, who is one, the first person he met because I think they got lost trying to find the college. Right. Then there was Rose, who's Jewish, and they kind of dated until she found out who he was. Eli, how did people find out who Derek was? Yeah, I mean, for the first six months that Derek was on this campus, he sort of made this really calculated choice to be um, a a white supremacist activist on the radio every day uh, and a regular college student in in this uh, in Sarasota, Florida. Um, New College of Florida is a really liberal school. Derek went because it was the best public school in Florida, which meant that it was the best school he could afford. And, you know, he was really smart um, and qualified. And also he thought no matter what the politics of this school is, like nobody's ever going to impact my thinking. Like this, this was the thing that he'd invested his entire future in. Um, so he also realized, though, once he got there, that if everybody on that campus knew who he was, his his campus life was likely going to be lonely and miserable. Um, so what he would do is he would wake up really early in the morning, which in college is like you know 10 a.m. Um, and he would <laughs> right. he, he would like walk far away from the dorms to this quiet spot on campus, and he would call into his daily radio show, which he at that point was doing with his father and they would you know go on the air and rail against the the minority takeover and um you know say say really hurtful things about uh IQ differentials spreading this false science um and then he would walk back onto campus and he would sort of befriend whoever walked by uh, and part of that is that Derek had always been hugely curious um about about things and about people and also he had never in his life been interpersonally hateful and that he didn't believe that it was ever useful to have like a direct interaction with somebody where you were name calling or things like that. And and he tried to make these ideas that he'd that he'd been given and learned from very on in, in childhood. He tried to make them about science and he tried to depersonalize them. So in his personal relationships, he was always kind, you know, a little bit opaque. Nobody knew much about him or his family. Um, and he was just sort of an anonymous kid on this college campus until uh, late in his freshman year there. Um, another student on campus was doing a paper for the uh, for, for their, their thesis on the biggest extremists in the country and went on the Southern Poverty Law Center website and looked at their their sort of roll call of, of the people who are the most dangerous to the country's future. And in this list, saw a photo of a kid who sat nearby him in math class. Um, and at that point, you know, the, the school uh, essentially exploded in this uproar of what do we do? Um, now we know that that sort of the rising star of, of this racist movement is going to school among us. Uh, how do we respond to that? Now, um, so I've got the sequencing wrong. Because where does the Details Magazine profile of him um, come into play? Because didn't he sort of strategically place it somewhere where he hoped someone would find it before, I think it was Christmas break? Exactly. Yeah, he did. And, and this sort of was happening at the same time as, as this student was researching on the Southern Poverty Law Center website. Um, Derek, you know, this double life was taking a toll on him, especially because 
he had started to make real friendships with these people, um, people who often he dehumanized on the radio. Uh, and, and particularly with one woman, Rose, Derek started to date her before realizing she was Jewish. Um, and then then was sometimes you know spending nights on the college campus with his Jewish girlfriend and then going home the next day to Thanksgiving in West Palm Beach where David Duke and Don Black would sit at the table uh, talking about how you know the Holocaust was a sham. Um, you know, and, and uh, Derek just felt this tension at that point sort of exploding inside him and felt like he needed it to end. But he also didn't have the courage at that point to tell anybody. Um, so he had he had tried to take one of these big magazine stories about him uh, and and put it in the school gym, like on the elliptical machine, hoping that maybe somebody would, would see it and discover it that way. I, I think at that point, he just felt like he couldn't he couldn't take it anymore. Um, right. you know, he, he, puts the, he puts the magazine on the elliptical, open the big picture. Someone, someone right. find me. <laughs> exactly. So, maybe it's a school where not many people were going to the gym. I'm not sure. <laughs> right. So um, Matthew is the one who... Um, Starts inviting him to. It's not. Was it Shabbat dinners every Friday yeah. night? Yes, it was Shabbat dinners. Yeah, and that was after he had been discovered. Exactly. Yeah. He. I mean. So one of the things that that because Derek had some relationships from those first months on campus before people knew who he was. Um, you know, when when the campus sort of exploded in this debate about what to do about him, there were some people who felt like they knew him and who also felt like, wait, this can't be this can't be right. This seems somehow inconsistent. Like he's, this is somebody I've spent time with. This is somebody I've played guitar with. Um, can he really believe these things? Uh, you know, and, and pretty quickly at new college, um, there were, there were two sort of main responses in terms of what to do about Derek. And, and I think, you know, they, they were both effective in their own ways. There was one group of students who thought, you know, we need to uh, shut this down. Like we, we need to, we need to um, either work to get him expelled. We need to sort of make clear that this kind of speech is not okay here, that it's hurtful. Um, and, and they began a campaign of sort of ostracism, trying to push Derek away from campus. Uh, and they were hugely successful. You know, they, they, Derek would sometimes get flipped off when he walked ac- across campus. Uh, students who were in classes with him would drop the class and protest. Um, at one point, students organized a school shutdown where they shut down the school for a day uh, and brought in somebody from the Southern Poverty Law Center to talk about um, white nationalism and and the dangers of it. Uh, all of these things, you know, had a real impact on Derek. I think for the first time in some ways, he saw through the eyes of his peers, people people that he considered in some small way in his in-group, how how hurtful and damaging these ideas were um, and, and how much they, uh, they affected people. Um, he also was isolated more than he had been before on campus, which was practically useful because then when some people like Matthew and some of these other friends began to reach out to him, Derek was in a much more vulnerable position uh, and, mm. and was much more likely to say yes. Um, so I, I think both of these effects uh, really, really did some great good in their own way. And Matthew was very, very patient. Um, there were people who were saying to him, why on earth would you have this guy over for dinner? He hates you. He hates all of us. And yet you're going to sit across from this guy? And one of those people um, who really didn't like Derek and who used to go to the Friday dinners but decided to like sit it out, sit in her room, not partake, was Allison. 
Right. Yeah. Allison was was Matthew and Moshe's roommate. Um, and when they decided that they were going to invite this, uh, you know, this famous white supremacist over to their to their dorm for Shabbat dinner, she thought it was a terrible idea. Um, you know, I think she'd she'd been much more in the camp of uh, we need to make it clear that that this kid is not welcome here. Um, so that first that first dinner, she uh, she stayed in her room. She sort of refused to come out out of protest. And she did that for several weeks. Um, but Derek kept coming back, you know, and, and he, uh, it wasn't just the first Friday or, or even a month of Fridays, it, you know, month after month, he kept showing up at her dorm room and she began to see that he was sometimes arriving with a bottle of kosher wine or, you know, he was nice to people. Um, it was a diverse group of people at the table. Uh, and she, she first realized he didn't seem to be a physical threat. Like he didn't seem to want to hurt anybody. Um, and then she just got, intensely curious. Uh, Allison is you know, now a, a on her way to her, her psych PhD, and, and she she really always wants to figure out people. And, and something about Derek to her didn't fit. She, she couldn't understand how this person who believed that uh, all, all minorities should be uh, banned from the continent um, also was capable of having these thoughtful, worldly conversations with a d- mm-hmm. diverse group of people at dinner. And she decided that she wanted to try to figure him out. Um, so now Allison figures prominently in the in I would say the the second half of the book because as she's getting to know him, she is really putting the screws to him in like sending him studies and articles and they're having talks and arguments about about his views. She was adamant in a way that and and arguably more successful than say the the sort of more passive approach that Matthew took. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, one of the lessons for me in reporting the book is that there's there are so many ways to go about impacting somebody's thinking. Um, and and you know, one of the things that I loved about about getting to spend so much time with all of these people is that they they had really different approaches. I mean, what Matthew decided he was going to do, which I find totally remarkable uh, in and of itself, is that he almost never talked to Derek about about white nationalism. Um, instead, he decided what he wanted to do was just build a relationship with Derek, not build a case against him, just hoping that at some point, uh, you know, Derek would would begin to see past his prejudices to the people and to the humanity. Um, and for Matthew and Moshe also, uh, Moshe, who's a Hungarian Jew whose family was essentially wiped out in the Holocaust, to, to show up at these dinners week after week, um, even when there was no sign for a long time that Derek's ideas were changing, and even when sometimes they would hear, oh, during the last week, it looks like Derek was, was back at the Stormfront conference in the woods of Tennessee, the fact that they kept coming to that table, just sort of choosing again and again to believe in in kind of um, the goodness of, of humanity uh, is uh, stunning to me that they never had that conversation. Um, Allison, on the flip side, decided that she was going to go about dismantling Derek's ideology, um, which meant for her that first she wanted to learn about it. So Allison started having conversations with Derek about what really are the things that you believe. Um, tell me, tell me why you believe these things. What's what's the science that you have to back this up? Um, and at one point, she took the extraordinary act after sort of befriending Derek of going with him undercover to one of these white nationalist conferences so that she could sort of marinate in it for herself and hear it for herself. Yeah, literally marinate in it. As I was reading that, Eli, I I kept thinking, could I in a million years put myself in that kind of position where um, I, I am in the room filled and surrounded by people who, if they knew my true identity, 
would, to my mind, tear me limb from limb. Yep, exactly. I mean, I think, and I think Allison, you know, had uh, had had the privilege in that situation of being white. She could blend in. She knew that people would not necessarily identify her as an outsider immediately. Um, but I think she spent those two days you know, feeling sick to her stomach um, and, and, and repulsed. Um, and she would go during these speeches to the bathroom and just almost like compulsively wash her hands because she just had this desire to feel clean and to drown out the noise of what was happening in the conference. Um, and I think more sobering to her, even than any of the speeches at the conference, was seeing how this community reacted to Derek. Um, Derek was not just an attendee at these conferences. He was the golden boy. He was he was the chosen one. Um, and not only was he giving the big speeches and telling people that the way ahead is through politics, but he also was the most popular person in the room. I mean, these were these were his family members. These were his family friends. Um, for him, it was almost like being being the the beloved person at a family reunion. And so, in between every speech, if she was sitting next to him. All of these people would come over to him and say, Derek, we're so proud of you. You're doing such important things. Now that you're getting this college degree, you're going to really be able to sort of mainstream these ideas in bigger ways. Um, and so Allison left that conference not only with an understanding of the ideology, but also with a realization of how much Derek would be giving up um, if he left it. I mean, I think she mm-hmm. realized how, how central he was to that world. Well, the the way she was able to get to him and um, – you know, after having gone to gone to the conference, and just the way it seems that she's wired, she she is about facts, hard facts. Here's here's how I'm going, as you said, dismantle your arguments. And she perceived that you know this is the way Derek is. I think I, I, the the quote I read before that you know instead of basing his public arguments on emotion or explicit prejudice, he based them on what he believed to be facts. So she met him facts for facts. And the thing that I found most fascinating in this time that we're in where no one, there doesn't seem to be a, 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 you know, a set of agreed upon facts was that Allison would bring him a study on genetics or intelligence and IQ tests. And he would read them, do his own research and sort of, internalize what he was getting from her. I know. Being more open and accepting. Yeah, yeah. And also, like, hugely comforting for me in reporting the book. I mean, I think I sensed this before, as we all do. Um, But looking into all of the facts uh, and all of the science, like, it is all on the side of the anti-racist, right? And so Allison knew that her facts and her science was better. Um, and, And Derek began to trust Allison enough because there was a relationship there. There was first a friendship uh, and then like a, a, a becoming a closer um, and eventually a romantic relationship. He trusted her enough to open up her emails, right? Like, so he, he said, okay, if she's sending me this, I trust her, I'll read it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Derek was smart enough to see that in fact, yes, her science was better. I mean, Derek, you know, Derek talked a lot about, um, this idea of IQ differentials between races. Uh, Allison herself at that point was administering the IQ test, knew it much better than he did, um, and was able to send him all kinds of studies showing him why his information was wrong. Uh, you know, she she was uh, sending him stuff about the ways in which race is, uh, is a social construct and, and how it's sort of bonded to emotions from early in life uh, and, and, and given to us in, in, in those ways. Um, you know, and, and to New College's credit, Allison also during this time 
was able to enroll in a class uh, about the science of prejudice and discrimination and the impacts of it. And she used that syllabus. She she sort of uh, like weaponized it and, and would send Derek all of these studies that she was reading in class about not just how he was wrong, but also about how prejudice hurts people in real ways and the health effects for people who suffer discrimination. And, you know, and, and those began to have an impact on Derek's thinking. I, I So in reporting the book, uh, well, as as a reader, I'm sitting there and I'm reading about this guy who just on paper, I have so I had I had so many problems with his worldview. And yet in reading about him and just the way he started shifting and changing, I could not help but be charmed by this guy. And that's why I was sort of asking myself, could I sit at dinner with this guy? Part of me thinks that I could. Yeah, I, part of me would be repulsed, but the the more you know, the could part was the one that was winning out. It's like I I actually thought I could be friends with this guy. Right. That's a, that's uh, that's an incredibly nice thing for you to say in terms of how how I just perceive and feel about the book too. Because I think the truth is that Derek, even when he was espousing uh, racist, damaging, awful ideas. Um, was a complicated person, right? And and he was uh, part of this was because these were ideas that he uh, he had he had been been given in some ways and not not come to on his own. Um, and part of it was because he is just like this insatiable, uh, curious person. Like he he pursued knowledge even as a white supremacist um, in every way that he could, uh, and and that was through reading, through challenging his ideas, through building relationships. Um, you know, so so I think. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. Like I, I'm, you know, I'm sure now, obviously, that you'd you'd love have, sitting down and having dinner with Derek, and you guys would have a lot of, uh, you know, your ideas about things would would be. Pretty yeah, well, similar. now I would. <laughs> right. uh, but even even then, I think like he was, you know, that was that was the thing that all. That's why all those students kept coming back to these Shabbat dinners, and it was, you know, that was a diverse group. It was uh, there. There was you know Juan who who had had immigrated from Peru when he was ten years old. Uh, there there were gay students. There were black students. There were there were you know white students it was it was a it was a diverse table there's a transgender um, student there was a transgender student who's fr- rose's friend right exactly and and derek um you know interpersonally was kind to all of them was curious about their experiences and so the other thing that allison did um is is she derek had tried to separate this idea of like oh white nationalism is is it's just an ideology like it's not it's not a personal thing it's just a way of thinking about the big movements of of the country and the world um, and allison which of course was a fallacy uh, a huge fallacy and allison would would make it personal for him by saying okay so what do you think should happen to juan to to your friend who you spend all this time with um who's like uh Part part Native American, part Peruvian, part Black. Like, where? What continent does he go to in this great resorting that you want to happen? And what happens to his family? And and how does he get to that other continent? Uh, and what does that mean for his his you know everybody else in his family? And and um, how does that look? And and she sort of forced these these ideas to become personal for Derek. Uh, and he had increasing trouble answering those questions. Um, he didn't know where they should go. So let's fast forward. Allison has succeeded in in her work in getting Derek uh, through facts and science and and credible studies to see that his white nationalist philosophy was not only dangerous but hurtful 
and and wrong, he decides that um, he is going to renounce everything, and he does it through the Southern Poverty Law Center. Right. Yeah. Talk talk about the significance the significance of that and when he did it and why he did it. Sure. I mean, I think for for a while, um, you know, Derek sort of came to these realizations first that he'd been wrong, um, then then that uh, that he, he had done huge amounts of damage, um, and his first instinct was, I just want to quietly slip away. Um, and and as time went on, he realized that was not a possible thing to do. Like he'd left a, he'd left a huge public legacy within this movement. Um, and, and he had no right to quietly slip away. He had to, he had to sort of speak back against it. Um, but he also knew that by doing that, uh, he likely risked ending every connection that he had to the first 23 years of his life. Um, he suspected that his family would not talk to him again. Uh, he, he suspected that, um, every relationship that he'd had up to that point would be severed. Um, so it took him a long time to get up the courage to do it. Uh, he went back shortly after graduating from new college to West Palm beach, um, to help his parents fix, fix some windows at the house. And it happened to be the day that the Trayvon Martin, uh, the, you know, the, the verdict had come out. Um, and Derek was driving around with his dad and he heard his dad saying all of these, um, dehumanizing things about, about Trayvon Martin. Uh, and, it made Derek feel sick to his stomach. I think in part because at that point he was so distanced from this ideology that that in fact what Derek had been reading were like the op-eds about Trayvon Martin in the New York Times. Um, but more upsetting than hearing his father say these things was Derek realizing he had said all of those similar things about situations like this again and again and again. Um, and he he still couldn't figure out how to tell his father uh, how far he'd he'd sort of traveled from this ideology. I mean, their their relationship had always been the closest relationship in both of their lives, um, and Derek knew that it would you know he was essentially going to break his dad's heart. Uh, so instead, what Derek did is he left the house and he went to a bar nearby, and he sort of um, finished writing this letter he'd been working on. Uh, about you know why white nationalism is wrong and and the damage that it causes and the damage that his family was still causing um, and he sent it to the Southern Poverty Law Center in part because uh, he felt like that was where it would resonate the loudest um, the SPLC you know in addition to having a a, a large audience of of anti racists is also very well read among white supremacists and white nationalists um, in part because they identify it as you know like sort of their their number one enemy um you know the the SPLC had sort of built itself in some ways on something called Clan Watch um which was a publication that really just covered Don Black when he was running the Klan um so so it, it was this very personal renunciation uh, that he knew his family would see and he also knew a wider audience would see um, and and yeah it it landed uh it landed with a bang yeah, a, a big bang. Uh, it caused him to um, not, I think disowned is probably too strong a word, but his mother would never allow him back in the house. His dad, he and his dad, um, at least at the very beginning, had a very strained relationship, didn't talk to each other. His father actually thought that this was a joke, that this was, you know, sort of the the, predece- the precursor to fake news. He thought that it was some sort of trick. Yeah, I mean, Don Black, in for his whole life, has sort of believed 
had believed that two things were like the the greatest truths. One, he thought that white nationalism was uh, correct, righteous, um, the way the way the way that he would the thing that he would devote his life to. Um, and number two, he thought that Derek, his son, was the smartest, most capable person that he knew. So suddenly, if Derek was saying uh, that no white nationalism is wrong, that meant that Don had been wrong about one of those two things. Either he had he'd been wrong about white nationalism or he'd been wrong about his son. Um, Mm. And, and suddenly like that paradigm no longer fit. So Don came up with all of these tortured, tortured ideas to try to make his ideas still square. Like maybe Derek had somehow been, been brainwashed by, by the left in college. Um, Maybe Derek was faking a change to have an easier life uh, going forward. Um, Yeah. Maybe, maybe this email had been, maybe Derek's email had been hacked into and somebody else had sent this, sent this email. Um, You know, they, I think for everybody, and it wasn't just Don, like within the white nationalist movement, Everybody knew Derek. Um, and so all of these message boards, Stormfront and everything else, uh, lit up with people first talking about, wait, is this true? What happened? Um, and then as as the days and then weeks went on, people trying to figure out, you know, where is he? Uh, and, and is there something we can do about this? Um, and so Derek, by that point, had decided to change his name, switch his first and middle name, um, and had moved across the country to graduate school, not telling anybody where he was going. I mean, I think at that point, he thought his his best course of action was to essentially disappear and, and start over. Um, and he expected at that point that he probably would not, uh, you know, would not see most of his family members again. Some of them he hasn't. Um, you know, before we started the interview, Eli, remember when I was saying there's this one passage in the book that I, I can't find it, but at some point, probably during the interview, I'm going to find it. I'm going to go, aha. Yes, I remember. I, f- I found it. Yes. Good <laughs> and job. It's, it's a, and this is a good segue into sort of fast forwarding to um, Donald Trump. Um, you have here on page 252, um, I think, Chloe, you have here, Chloe told Dom that the spectacle reminded her of Duke's rallies in the 1980s when he routinely drew thousands of whites to hear him speak in rural Louisiana. This is um, Chloe having gone to um, a, a Trump rally. Right. And Chloe and, is Derek's mom. Right. And so you have, quote, we have been trying to recruit these same disaffected whites that Trump is going after. It's the exact same audience, Don said, shortly after Trump secured the Republican nomination in the late spring of 2016. Quote, everybody may not want to call themselves a white nationalist. That sounds a little scary, but but it's the same principle. He is tapping into the fact that race is still a huge part of identity. He's accelerating the timeline of our movement by several decades by making many millions of people more racially aware. Before, nobody really knew what a white nationalist was. Now he's given us this incredible platform. Yep. Yeah. I, I, and I think Derek, uh, you know, Derek at first when he moved away and, and he moved to Michigan and changed his name, um, he thought for a while, like maybe maybe all these seeds that he'd helped plant um, would just stay in the ground and and maybe he could sort of go on and live a normal life and white nationalism would would remain sort of a, a small thing that not very many people talked about. Um, but he began to see uh, in, in 2015, 2016, uh, you know, all of these seeds growing all around him um, and it terrified him, you know, and, and this is also when I first learned about Derek uh, and kind of came into his life was after 
Dylan Roof had um, had murdered ten people at the church in Charleston, uh, and had been motivated by Stormfront, and had used language that echoed a lot of the language that Derek and his father would use on the radio. And so, not only had that happened, but in the way that that uh, anti-refugee rhetoric rhetoric was sweeping through Europe, um, in in the way that Americans were talking about immigration or the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, and then certainly in the presidential campaign uh, of 2016. Derek heard all of these talking points from his childhood echoing all around him um, in these huge, powerful ways. And I, and I think the thing that scared Derek is that he he knows the power of this ideology because it's it's a power, unfortunately, deeply rooted in America's hugely problematic racial history. Um, and and Derek believed that uh, you know there there was there was a way to speak to this white grievance that would have huge political ramifications. Um, and once he saw that happening, I think he decided, you know, it wasn't enough to speak up against this ideology once in this letter to the SPLC. He he decided and has continued to decide that he needs to continue to invest himself um, and his own future in, in speaking up against it. Uh, because, you know, at this moment in particular, I think being silent um, is almost like being complicit, like the stakes are just too high. Yeah, as he saw all around him, you know, Trump was sort of the 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 mountaintop for, for the white nationalists. But before Trump came along, you had Andrew Breitbart, Rush Limbaugh, Lou, Lou Dobbs, Newt Gingrich, Glenn Beck, Congressman Steve King, who were all in one way or another using white nationalist language to talk about mainstream political ideas. Um, Eli, I can't um, end this interview without asking. So, Derek, we started this conversation with him being a white nationalist. He's now no longer a white nationalist, and very much publicly so. Where is Derek now? So Derek now is finishing his PhD at the University of Chicago. Um, you know, it's it's his transformation has sort of uh, impacted his you know, and the fact that he's just invested himself in fighting back against this has impacted his life in these really interesting ways. Where he's um, you know, so as part of of learning that he'd been wrong about white nationalism, Derek initially as as a kid and as a teenager had sort of invested himself in this idea of like the Middle Ages as a time of crusading white European warriors fighting for the white race. This this is like the iconography of the white nationalist movement. Um, and Derek had invested himself in that version of history. Then he went to college hoping to be a medievalist and began to learn that in fact, uh, you know, none of these European warriors conceived of themselves as white, that that concept didn't exist in the same way. Um, and also, at that time, actually, the Islamic world was far ahead of the white world, or, or the European world, I should say, in many ways. Um, and so Derek has switched his specialty and is now studying the Islamic world um, and mm. has been working to learn Arabic. Uh, and I think part of his focus, you know, in terms of his own history work is trying to trying to get medievalists to acknowledge um, the, the sort of true version of a more global history um, instead of focusing mostly on on the rise of Europe. Uh, so that's one thing that he's doing. Um, but also he's you know, he spent last summer uh, as as a as an expert consultant um, to Facebook, helping them figure out hmm. sort of the rise of, of extremism and and um, polarization online. Uh, you know, so so I think he's um, he's trying to figure out what's the way to have the most impact. You know, and and I think it's really it's a challenging question for him, probably in the years going forward, uh, in that he. I think he feels really compelled to do as much as he can to push back because 
uh, all of all of the the damage that he did, it's still it still is real. It still exists. I, I think okay. Derek he doesn't know you know how many people were marching in Charlottesville uh, because they had had seen something that he'd said or because they'd gone to the white pride website that he built for kids uh, that was visited a million times and um, you know I, I don't know what the number is but I'm, I'm sure it's not zero and and so is Derek mm-hmm. and I think he's he feels like uh, you know he needs he needs to do as much as he possibly can to push back against it because because the damage is still real um, but at the same time you know he's he's I think a really uh, bright uh, historian who has who has a great future in his own right and so figuring out a way to balance those two things i think i think is something that he'll continue to work on and where's allison so derek and allison are together still together uh committed to each other allison is um she she's at uh at a school in michigan uh so she's in her finishing her phd program so so they live like three hours apart but they spend you know i i I, I don't know if it's the bulk of their time together, but they, you know, it's it's a short enough long distance relationship that they're able to spend much of their time together. And and certainly when I was reporting the book, um, I was spending a lot of time with the two of them together. Uh, you know, where where they would have weekends together, and I would just uh, come and third wheel it and 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 hang around. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing about uh, about your reporting, um, even here at the Washington Post, is that you give us a fly on the wall, not even fly on the wall. Sometimes, you know, as you said, third wheel, like, you know, it's like, I know Eli is sitting at that table right now right. <laughs> as, I'm, as yeah. I'm reading things. Eli, last question. What do you hope people um, will take away from your book? You know, I think uh, for me anyway, what I took away uh, is, is it's an interesting, uh, like two, two really divergent sort of realizations. Um, one of which is, uh, that the power of this ideology um, in in America's mainstream is profound, uh, and and that unfortunately, I think, as the country's demographics continue to shift, um, playing to this false sense of white grievance is only going to continue to have more potential power, um, and and uh, that's really scary. Um, and I hope that 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 part of the book uh, can, in some small way. Be, be a little bit of a call to action in terms of what we're what we're up against um, with some of these ideas that are so deeply rooted in, in our history and you know, the other thing that I took away uh, and that I hope readers take away is that the possibility for personal transformation is profound you know like if if the future leader to this movement uh, who was who was you know connected to it in every single way um, especially within his family and um, if he is capable of finding his way out, renouncing his beliefs and ending up so far on the other side as like a a rising in prominence, anti-racist activist. Uh, That gives me a lot of hope that people who have less further to travel um, are also capable of challenging their own ideas and and changing. And, you know, the problem, of course, is that there are a lot of people. There are a lot of people who have who, who, as Derek would say, don't want to be called racist, but who have ideas that are are uh, are influenced by race um and and that are racist at their core uh, and unless we can force those people to confront some of those ideas in the same way that that students on campus force Derek to do that uh, I think we're in a lot of trouble Eli Saslow Pulitzer Prize winning reporter at the Washington Post and author of Rising Out of Hatred The Awakening of a Former White Nationalist thank you so much for being on the podcast of course thanks for having me on Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. 
And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. One more thing before we go. The Post has a brand new podcast that I'm excited about, and I want to take a moment to share it with you. Host Martine Powers and Post journalists will bring to life The Post's unparalleled reporting through expert insight and in-depth analysis. It comes out every weekday in the afternoon. Here's the trailer, and then go subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You don't want to miss it. Every day at The Washington Post, we cover the news. We put out a newspaper, we post articles and photos and videos online 24 hours a day. We produce hundreds of stories documenting what's happening in America and around the world. The CIA has determined that Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince in Saudi Arabia, directed the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi. The number of false and misleading claims he made on the campaign trail the last few weeks is breathtaking. And there's so much that goes into that final product. Sorry, again, how long was it after we left here that... Seven minutes. I told them, I'm like, they just asked me, and I'm like, no, it won't be a surprise if he gets fired. (laughs) I received a call from the White House press secretary, Sarah Sanders, and she said, hey, the big guy's going to call you in about five minutes. There are twists and turns in the reporting along the way. I was in Columbia Heights in Northwest D.C. and found an alley by the bar that I was at, and put my computer up on top of one of those green recycling bins and uh, took the call from the president of the United States, who was on Air Force One. So we're doing something new, giving you the reporting, the insight and analysis you expect from The Washington Post in a podcast. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Kevin, this is Gabrielle Kelly at the Washington Post. How are you? Hey there, it's Simon from the Post. Hey, it's Dave Farron from the Post. This is Post Reports, hosted by me, Martine Powers. Stories about politics. This is a president who owes money to all these people, and you can't really understand his conflicts of interest until you understand who he owes money to. But also about the state of the country and the state of the world. And I think that that is where climate change is starting to come in. It's causing fires to move more rapidly, to spread more rapidly, and also to burn hotter. And how we come to know the things we know. That's the sound of Antarctic snow. Healthy snow. Not healthy snow. Most of all, these are stories that capture the reality of the world inside and outside of Washington with nuance and unflinching honesty.